ethics is critical, especially for those sorts of technologies that are not fully covered by international law. But we should not prioritize an ethical use of AI over the actual enforcement of existing international law that we already have, particularly, for example, the requirement for states that are party to the additional protocol of the Geneva Conventions to conduct Article 36 reviews. This episode focuses on artificial intelligence in modern warfare, automation, and a discussion on the ethical use of emerging technologies in conflict. Such discussion is much needed in order to understand our changing world as well as the conditions that shape and repeat history itself. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. In this episode, uh, we are taking a look at military automation and emerging technologies in warfare and beyond. And for this very reason, I'm very pleased to be joined by Mike Farbruchen, a doctoral researcher. Hello, Mike. Thanks so much for tagging along. Thanks for having me. And originally a historian and sociologist, uh, Mike Farbruchen now studies the future of warfare. She is a doctoral researcher at the Center for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy at the Brussels School of Governance at the Freie University Brussels in Belgium. And her specialty is the intersection between emerging technologies, military innovation and arms control. And she is currently finishing up her PhD on military innovation and artificial intelligence and particularly the controversies behind it. Uh, it's like I said, it's a great pleasure to have you on, on the show. I'm also very excited uh, because you are uh, nearing the finishing line, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, ne- never. Uh, yes. Yes, I am. Yeah, it's uh, I, I hope your journey has been I mean, I, I, like everyone else, I'm pretty sure you've had uh, quite, quite a big challenge in front of you, but I hope that you've made the most of this journey thus far. Yeah, no, it's it's been it's been really interesting. My my main problem has been way too much interesting stuff, and then uh, making a choice and all the the interesting dynamics and developments around AI that I've learned about to to integrate in my my PhD. Absolutely, I understand that. And you know the the other thing is it's such a useful field nowadays to focus on. Uh, automation and AI, and AI technologies, and which is why I want to begin by asking you to give us a, b- a bit of an overview on what kind of technologies and automation has ac- have actually helped the defense industry as well as militaries in general to take a leap forward in terms of innovation. All right. Um, well, I'll, I'll say first that uh, it's a very broad question because that's particularly what the utility of AI is. There are so many different sorts of users of AI uh, that it's that it's tough to give a short answer to this. Um, but but broadly, we see um, right now uh, we see AI um, being pursued in, in a wide range of, of applications from yeah AI in the in the targeting cycle for searching for targets, optimizing strikes up to uh, potentially just automatic engagements, like we talk about the debate on autonomous weapons, but also, uh, well, non, non-kinetic non uses of AI, like in the cyber domain. AI is used for 
logistics, for maintenance, and even for the production of weapons itself. Uh, there's a lot of use of AI in, in modeling, in uh, robotics for production. So we see many, many different applications of, of AI, many different techniques, many different uses, which is exactly why AI is so hot right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's trending. It's a very hot topic. And as you said, it's so broad. It's just uh, we, we would have to narrow down further in order to get the actual grasps with it, with each and different type of technology and field we're talking about. We can't just uh, talk too broadly <laughs> uh, when it comes <laughs> no. to this now. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I think that's that's often a bit of the problem we talk about AI without going into the details like what sort of techniques and uses are we talking about? Because there are huge differences here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I guess uh, this next question that I had in mind is uh, suffering from its own uh, definitional problems as well, because it's uh, probably, again, very broad, also conceptually challenging. But when people refer to complete automation and how reliable that is, so the aspect of reliability. What exactly do we mean by that? Can we truly, first of all, leave everything to uh, artificial intelligence, robots, machines, without any human input whatsoever? Uh, what do we mean by these key concepts of reliability and complete automation? Oh, you you start off uh, easy, not. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the problems you, you bring up here are also... Oh, just to start, they're not just conceptual problems. They're, they're real political problems because exactly how do we define reliability of AI or complete automations is what a lot of these countries are currently, well, discussing right now in, in their search for figuring out some sort of consensus on, on where to draw the limits. So, so it is both a technical and a political problem. Uh, what one when we consider something reliable or not? When we talk about a lot of machine learning that we see today, um, works um, all right, decently, when applied to very yeah, narrow uh, uses on uh, situations that closely match the data is trained on for her very specific purposes. Especially good at things like classification, categorization, translation. So very clearly defined tasks. But when we go to more broader tasks, such as yeah, prediction in the future or giving a judgment, and uh, used for cases that are either very wide, such as, well, crime, for instance, or, or that don't match the data that machine learning is trained on well, then AI starts to perform less and less. So to what extent it is complete automation is, is then again a separate question. So the, the sophistication of how good machine learning is, or AI in general, is not necessarily the same as how, how autonomous it is, so to say. That, that is a function of, well, how exactly it is configured and used in, in, in a system. Think about... Um, autonomous cars right now, the debate. Uh, there are uh, car companies have different sorts of autonomous cars on the market with different like, levels of autonomy, so to say. Some just the car does everything. Some the human takes over in emergencies. Some the car only drives on like highways. So 
to what ex- like the full autonomous where the human does nothing is is a separate question to how advanced AI is and how reliable the AI is. So so just making a judgment on well to what extent we can trust AI, whether it's a good to integrate it, is, is really contextual depend and dependent on specifically what you want to get out of it, what sort of system it is integrated in, and and well also like what um, what criteria you have for safety, reliability, consistency, and uh, well the good news here is that um, at least insurance companies rely uh, like uh, demand for autonomous uh, car manufacturers that it is really reliable. Otherwise, they'll never be insured, and that's mm-hmm. the main. Uh, thing blocking Elon Musk from flooding uh, the world <laughs> with his uh, self-crashing Teslas, <laughs> yeah. and and similar also in the military domain. The military is one of the institutions with the most rig- uh, rigid criteria for testing and evaluation of weapons that they are reliable and that we know how they will act. So that is at least a comfort. However, as I said, it's it's a political technical headache to really assess this. Yeah. Yeah, I would assume so. I mean, it's uh, also very interesting because you've uh, sort of drawn this comparison between the civilian use and the military use and how the, the process differs. But also, we still have to look at the political and the technical uh, aspects of it. And you are specifically interested in autonomous vehicles and drones, If uh, am I correct? Not specifically autonomous vehicles. Um, I'm interested in, in AI, in, in weapon systems. Uh, the question about autonomous weapons, as in killer robots, so to say, is one of the well uses I'm particularly interested for obvious reason. But I'm also very interested in AI, especially for those mundane uses that get less attention, but might also be actually really big game changers. And AI for AI for use as as instruments for military innovation. So using AI to innovate is also something I think is is really fascinating and not talked about enough. Right. Yeah, that's uh, really, really good to hear. But, you know, I was thinking of the issues in terms of uh, proliferation and procurement, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to, you know, the various modern types of arms that we have, uh, drones, automated machinery, among others, and how this is reflected across the world. So how secure is it when it comes to export control? Do we risk having falling into the inverted quotes uh, wrong hands, for example, in non-state actors or terrorist hands? Do we risk, is there a specific process that we have to align with when it comes to export control? Oh, yeah. Um, but first, I'll say, of course, the question of wrong hands is, is super, super subjective here. And that's also the problem. Different people have different views on what the wrong hands are exactly. But, but what yet, would be your view, if, if I may ask? Yeah. So to, to get from the start, I mean, there are, um, there are export control regimes, uh, including, well, most important, uh, the, the Wassenaar uh, arrangement that has like lists for dual use and uh, military systems, which are very closely aligned to the EU uh, lists for for weapons that all, well, EU countries have to comply with. However, uh, the problem with AI is, well, multiple fault. First, I mean, the updating of this list goes slow. 
it, it's it's a political technical headache to really decide on what are the specific criteria of the of the technologies that we put them on. The EU has been working on updating the export control regulations for surveillance technologies, for instance, for for at least uh, ten years since the Arab Spring broke out. But it's it's a very both technical and political sensitive issue uh, when it comes to dual use goods because on one hand you don't want them to well proliferate everywhere but at the same time they've also legitimate uses so the economic actors who want to export these these goods are obviously well they i make these for civilian markets and you're putting a barrier on, on my trade op- options and on top of that export control lists work mostly by specifying very detailed what sort of technologies included or not. And if technology changes very fast, like we see with AI, that, that is um, either you need to have a very broad definition, you have to update it a lot. So that, that's a problem. But more fundamentally, what's also a problem, uh, speaking as an academic, I'm, I'm with our dual-use uh, committee at our university. And for us, uh, yeah, we, we do ethics reviews and, and we, we um, send uh, researchers to the, the expert control agencies here in Brussels if necessary. And for us, the problem is as well bringing in the, the elephant in the room, the question about China. Because uh, for us as a small university, the question is not so much, much how, what should we do to ensure that uh, yeah, critical technologies don't go to China, but also how can we ensure that we still remain competitive? Uh, and if we cut off all cooperation with China, where all the talent and the money is, then we as a small university might actually cut ourselves in the foot. So this is difficult process of finding this balancing between remaining competitive in innovation, remaining competitive in economic trade, but also minimizing uh, risks of technology proliferating to countries with less friendly relations or or to non-state actors or terrorists. And this is always a difficult balance. Double so if something transforms so quickly and in such multifaceted ways as AI. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting take. And I'm glad that you've brought the question of uh, ethics when it comes to proliferation. It's uh, in, in general, when it comes to ethics and AI, we've seen a lot of um, sort of controversial questions and other questions arising from the application of these systems. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you allow me, I'm just going to jump to a question that's very ethics specific sure. before asking the other questions that I've had in mind. Uh, it's something that we've wondered for quite a few times, even before, uh, perhaps at least myself in my case, before getting involved in, with academia, uh, before acquiring even academic knowledge to any extent, I would watch, uh, you know, I would read a lot of uh, sci-fi literature mm, and I, yeah. would, I would typically look at Same. the issues. I'm glad to hear that it's not just me. Uh, but yeah, I would, you know, typically focus on things like what sort of cognition machines develop. And mm. as, as far as we know, we, they cannot really feel or interpret to a, a good extent or understand human emotions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you say that this means that they are able to contribute to operations uh, out there in the field without any human bias? Or is it the other way around? And on the other hand, how do we address, again, going back to the question of ethics, any ethical questions arising from increased automation in modern warfare. If, for example, they're not able to make any distinction between the lives that they 
take in the event that there is, for example, a concentrated terrorist incident. For example, there, there might be an algorithm that calculates the statistics of what the chances are to survive the incident by taking out everyone within, like, let's say, a given radius, which would also include civilian casualties. Uh, and what are the implications of trying to take out targets uh, individually? You know, humans would obviously recognize sometimes, uh, I mean, depending on what the objective is, I would say, they would they would try to separate those two. They would try to, you know, uh, keep civilians out of out of the out of that data so what in case the machines cannot do that they cannot which is going back to the question of being unable to understand mm. ethics and emotions what uh what would the effect be in this case and how do we address these questions again you're you're uh... I'm, I'm here almost ready to go on holiday vacations and now you're throwing throwing this at me <laughs> um, so so let me answer answer them one by one. So you brought up the question of, well, emotions and, and human bias and whether that would uh, yeah, be um, an argument in favor or against uh, systems or artificial, artificial intelligence, so to say. I think the, for me, what it boils down to is that the times that we see, when we see war crimes, the times when we've investigated war crimes, it is sure human emotion sometimes plays a role, but not only. Um, there have been way too many war crimes to count that have been, well, either approved from above or even organized above. Uh, thinking, for instance, of uh, sexual abuse in in conflict, we see a lot of them is, is systematic as a weapon of war, a systematic uh, use of torture, for instance, by well, uh, by the U.S. in Iraq and Afghanistan, that was institutional and organized. These are not instances of people exploding in rage and emotions, and therefore AI will not necessarily will not improve so the. Uh, will not reduce the risk of such war crimes um, because these war crimes are much are not a result from 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 pure pure emotions that people can't control anymore so to follow that how can we then instead um, deal responsibly with ai so you bring up ethics a lot and i think ethics for me are important but the law is more important for me than ethics and it is often a risk that these conversations turn into ethics and ethics are critical. However, ethics are also often soft and not hard. Mm -hmm. um, often ethic codes lead to companies, organizations not adopting any legal guidelines or ignoring the fact that they already have legal guidelines like international humanitarian law that they are already obliged to follow. Ethics is critical, especially for those sorts of technologies that are not fully covered by international law. But we should not prioritize an ethical use of AI over the actual enforcement of existing international law that we already have, particularly, for example, the requirement for states that are party to the additional protocol of the Geneva Conventions to conduct Article 36 reviews. So these are reviews. Every, every country is required to legally review every new 
weapon, means and method of warfare before they even start to assess whether it's legal, whether it complies with international law. And the majority of countries don't actually do this. So before we talk about, hmm, should we do ethics? No, we need to ensure that countries actually enforce international law already and don't even develop and research these systems uh, without doing thorough for assessments of, of the law and ethics as well. It is it is both very important. I'm just worried sometimes that ethics is used to hide, obscure the importance and the bindingness of international law sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you asked multiple questions and I'm not 100% sure I answered them all. I probably didn't, uh, but... Uh, oh, you, you, you have to a great extent. And I wanted to also to thank you for bringing in this insight because the reason, the main reason I've asked such a challenging question well such a compilation of challenging questions is because this is something that we visit very often when it comes to these questions on these topics on uh, new emerging technologies Mm. within warfare and you know they all very often bring in the question of ethics and this is something that they have discussed within different ethics committee as well Mm. in uh, within my university and other institutions that i've collaborated with it's the same sort of question but again the legality of things is very often sidelined or overshadowed to to a good extent and this is very good that you've brought up this um issue because um we have to acknowledge what's already applicable and uh, we also have to trust a bit more that units opting in for the use of such technologies, they've already done a good amount of work and research in order to make sure that this is applicable in law. And uh, Not 100% course, sure. I would agree there that we need to trust them more. But for me, it would be more if we stress something that we want countries to do, then for me, it is pr- pr- prime for me to push them into better uh, enforcement of international law. Fair enough. That's a good point. And I guess I, I don't want to focus too much on this because obviously it's uh, such a good contested uh, topic as well. But um, moving on from this challenging question <laughs> and getting to a bit less, I hope, of a challenging question would be the issue of increase or and decrease in innovation and military automation whether this increase or decrease makes uh, any difference when it comes to nuclear deterrence. If more automation, it makes it completely redundant when we think about nukes and whether these emerging technologies are an equal player as uh, nuclear warfare. I mean, I would say that eh, perhaps this is not really comparable, but what sort of impact do you have emerging technologies on uh, nuclear warfare? Oh, yeah. Let's, do, let's keep it easy and simple. What about nuclear annihilation, Micah? No, uh, I see your, your definition of uh, keeping it simple <laughs> and fun. It's a good question. Uh, but I think for me, the issue is that nuclear weapons and AI, well, first, they're rather different sorts of technologies because AI doesn't stand alone. I mean, it's... It's a capability, but AI doesn't exist on its own. AI always is integrated into a weapon and does something. But on its eye, it's on its own, it's it's nothing. It's like material science. Okay, there's material, but material itself is nothing. Mm-hmm. So therefore it's kind of difficult to compare to nuclear because nuclear weapons and delivery systems are there are specific objects that we can discuss. So either there's the question of like 
integration of AI into the whole, well, nuclear nuclear defense systems in various ways or, uh, well, making conventional weapons much better. And when it comes to the first, uh, well, that has been discussed extensively, but I presume that you're more interested in whether improved conventional weapon systems, how what that would mean for nuclear deterrence. And Mm -hmm. personally, I would give you two answers to that. Uh, First, the capabilities in AI and conventional weapons are not equally spread. So there are some countries that are much better in developing these conventional weapons. For instance, the US, like we've seen for over the past decades that uh, Russia's very much reliant on its nuclear arsenal to counter and to compensate, to deter for the increased conventional capabilities of the US. So might might be potentially less relevant for the US and becomes more relevant for Russia. Uh, in, we similarly see, for instance, for Pakistan and India. India is doing much better on AI and conventional weapons. But nuclear weapons, they're the great equalizer. Even if you're a small country with a small arsenal, they, they're this ultimately ultimate, I got you, weapon. So it, it will become nuclear weapons will become even more critical for Pakistan in its defense if India gets much better in AI. So... It is this inherent um, asymmetry, so to say. That's a that's a good point, and especially when it comes to integration. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. But let's look at something else being integrated. Uh, it's this concept that I have been reading about recently: the cyborgization. So, apart from automation, uh, certain researchers have uh, started looking into the cyborgization of soldiers. Mm. And although this does sound like uh, one of those sci-fi books that uh, we've been reading about, we're talking about real wearable devices, exoskeletons, and other features that are under development. And when, uh, what would you say that in the event of an outbreak of conflict, of armed conflict, of any scale, uh, can we, how would you speculate uh, the impact, the cost on, well, first of all, going to the actual manufacturing of these resources, obviously, whether this is going to be make warfare more costly in terms of actual uh, costs allocated to the procurement, development, and so on. And as when it comes to life itself, whether we're going to have an increased number of casualties if we have, uh, you know, soldiers on both sides or how many sides there are wearing, you know, uh, these uh, devices. Would you say that there's going to be, we're going to see increased costs in that sense? So... Why governments are developing these weapons is particularly, well, I'm going to use now some, some defense terms that are sound very, very clinical, but sort of as a, as a force multiplier to get more out of the soldiers that they already have, to make them run longer, fly longer without sleep, carry more weight, respond quicker, etc. So to multiply the power that they already get from these soldiers. And in that sense, there are some debates about human soldiers turning into berserkers, so to say, under shot of pharmaceuticals. And that's, of course, an important discussion, but that is not really generally in the technical or strategic interest of government. So that's not really what I'm particularly concerned about. 
because these berserkers are what would pose the greatest threat to civilians, obviously. What I actually concerned about in the, these debates is uh, labor rights of soldiers, particularly. This is like the, the, the rights and, and the impact on soldiers is something that's kind of lost in our current debates on arms control, emerging technologies. It's mostly about states and civilians, and they're super, super important. But for me, I'm concerned about what, like the human right impact of on soldiers. I mean, soldiers are not, a, they have, uh, when they sign up, uh, they, they sign away some human rights. So they don't have the same human right protections as other uh, civilians. And when it's true in a legal sense, from international law sense, please don't call me on this. I'm not a lawyer. It's just that, for instance, um, experimental vaccinations, soldiers might be required to take them. Not talking about COVID here, but for instance, about the un uh, soldiers were required to take experimental Antwax vaccinations when they were shipped to Iraq. Mm -hmm. um, soldiers are heavily pressured to take pharmaceuticals like uh, meth, speed, drugs to fly extra long to perform. Uh, when we get to, well, literally human brain implants, uh, why are there a lot of research about the question is to what extent you soldiers can say no toward these things uh, or whether they will be de facto or just literally pressured to take these there's the question about yeah well they're constant constant monitoring the biometric uh, the capture of every single piece of biometric information what is currently already done so much of ai that's currently developed is also to monitor capture optimize so to say the performance of soldiers our own soldiers it is used to optimize them like they are some sort of <laughs> software program themselves and and that I, I I find concerning, and I find concerning how little debate there is about that. And um, well, that is partially because in general, well, soldier military unions and soldier protections is li literally curtailed in many countries. Uh, I mean, but there's also lack of um, yeah, like uh, lack of discussion. I think it would be good to have more international discussion about about what this does to, to soldiers and their re when they reintegrate back into society, to what extent there will be permanent effects to this. Um, and, and I think that that's a worthwhile discussion that we as the international community should have more. And obviously the effect that this has on, uh, not just to the soldiers themselves, but how, to their surrounding environment, to their families when they exactly. return from uh, conflict, from war, exactly. what happens, uh, and uh, to what extent are they different, what sort of treatment might be uh, required exactly okay so then um as a final question i hope this is a bit of an easier question on you i was wondering if you're willing to share a few words about your research progress and what sort of uh the things you're currently examining at uh, this uh period easier question uh so a few words only on my pc that that is the toughest question so far well <laughs> uh keeping a few words um, but no, thanks for giving the opportunity to talk about my work. So my PhD about, about, is about, well, I look at uh, military innovation AI and particularly what drives it and what are the obstacles towards it. I look at this from a more historical perspective. So since the Second World War, we've seen already three big waves of super hype and enthusiasm in AI, uh, but they were too optimistic and then they... And that led to inevitable disappointment and then the enthusiasm and the money 
uh, dried up and AI sort of became more niche again. And then we've seen it again in the 80s and then it dried up again and we see it again. So why do we see AI returning time after time? What, what, what leads to this dynamic? Why are we so fascinated by it? But why does it not work? So I, I look at both AI, therefore, in the historical perspective and also, well, in the global, looking at three countries, France, Japan, and the US, and their respective histories and, and challenges with AI to find, well, what's what's in common and what's, what's different here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are too many things to say here. I don't know how to choose. Uh, but what I find particularly, particularly interesting is um, well, a couple of things. Like first, well, what is AI? That the notion of what AI is has, has shifted continuously over time. And some things that we now call AI we wouldn't. We were explicitly not AI in the future. Like in the fifties, the whole well, neural connectionist sort of approaches where that's not AI. That's a different discipline. And now it is what AI is all about. For example, so so what what is AI? And also changes over time. But also we see that once it has become successful and integrated, we no longer call it AI because well, it's just a machine. It's just a tool. We we forget it even exists. So also our conception of AI changes over time. Uh, but the second problem, what I also find interesting is that we see these exact same debates time after time again. The discussions about, that we just had today, about reliability, about certainty, about what level of automation. We see that returning time after time. The question about what it does to a military innovation process itself, the questions of export and diffusion. We see these returning I've got some amazing quotes and it's like, if you replay, if you change the word uh, Japan to China, you change the word IBM to mm-hmm. Google, it could literally be written by some mad EU official today about how the EU is falling <laughs> behind or the European community back in the days. And it's just like, it's amazing how history repeats itself, but in, in different ways. Um, I start to rant uh, too long already. <laughs> so I'll just like the, the final thing that I think is really, really interesting for is uh, um, how how critical, well, military interest and military funding, and especially US funding for AI has been over its history. It has, it's like cumulatively by far the most important funder, researcher, executor, and AI would be nothing without the US military. So in all these debates, it's about ah, we are nothing. Silicon Valley is everything. It it is it is interesting to see it in a longer term historical context and how these shift these dynamics shift so much over time and also that we will not know exactly where we'll be in ten years. Yeah, I have to say that your research is simply it sounds very very cool. I I think okay, cool is such a vague word. I apologize for <laughs> saying just cool, but I think it's so groovy, baby. Uh, <laughs> I would say that it's something that is definitely you know it's not just um, trending, but also very useful. It has so many different applications, and what you are looking at, you've proven through this discussion that it it's also interdisciplinary. You can examine this from different lenses, absolutely. Uh, and at the same time, uh, uh, although you know there's some changes going on, history does repeat itself, and we do see different phenomena and different sort of narratives I would call mm. them uh, being uh, circulated again and again and it's it's good to have 
uh, people like you on board who are able to analyze that and see uh, read between the lines. So uh, at this point, I'd like to thank you so much for your contribution. It's been a very fun discussion, and I hope it has. I haven't been too tough on you with these questions. No, not at all. It's been super fun having uh, talking to you, Petrus. <laughs> thank you so much, and I hope uh, that uh, you do fantastic in with the rest of your research and all the best with your future work. Thanks so much, and same to you. <laughs>